Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. So I invite you to turn there. If you're using the Bibles and the chairs around you, you can find it on page 886. John, chapter 1, starting in verse 14, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to You. We thank You for Your Word that we heard. Your Word is alive. Your Word brings light. Lord, You are the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. And so that's why we come to you and we ask that you would do the same thing in dark hearts, dark minds today. That you would say, let there be light. Let there be the light of the world. Let there be Jesus Christ in dwelling hearts and minds here today. So Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we could see the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is a really thick book. It's really big. There's a lot in there. Um, there's uh, 66 books. There's 1,189 chapters. There's 31,173 verses. Uh, it would take the average adult about 70 hours to read through the whole Bible straight through. Uh, it's really has a lot of diverse genres in there. There's uh, history, poetry, songs, there's wisdom, apocalyptic literature, perils, letters, and more. So what, what's this big book all about? What's, what's the overarching storyline, and what is the goal of the whole Bible? What's it all moving toward? Uh, I think these are really important questions to ask, because if we don't ask them, I think as we read the Bible, we, we get a little lost. Uh, we lose the forest for the trees. One verse that I think summarizes this goal of the storyline of the Bible is from Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The Bible starts in Genesis 1 and 2 with God dwelling with his people, Adam and Eve. And he walked with them in the garden. They worshipped him alone, unhindered, as their God. But when sin entered the world, unholy man could not dwell with a holy God, lest Adam and Eve be utterly destroyed. 
And so the whole Bible is the story of God restoring his relationship with his people so that he will dwell with them again. Just as a, just as a man pursues a woman to win her as his bride and live with, uh, so that they can live together all their days, so also God wants a relationship with his people. He wants a relationship with you. So to what extent did God go to pursue his people? To what extent did God go to restore his relationship with them that he might dwell with them? How far did God go? What obstacles did he overcome to make this happen? What journey did he take? What price did he pay? What foes did he conquer? What dragon did he slay? That's what John 1, 14-18 is all about. In the incarnation of Jesus, we see the glory of God's unimaginable plan to bring us back to himself. Because of the incarnation, we can be healed of our blindness and see the glory of God. Because of the incarnation, we can be rescued from the condemnation of God and instead receive the grace and favor of God. Because of the incarnation... We have our our broken relationship with God restored. And then we can know God personally and intimately. We will dwell with Him forever. So that's where we're going today in this text. We have three points in our outline. uh, Three ways our relationship with God has changed because of the incarnation. So first we'll consider the glory we have seen. Then, the grace we have received. And then, the God we have known. Let's look, let's, uh, look now on verse 14. The glory we have seen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's, let's first consider the glory of the Incarnation. And then let's ask... Uh, how, how can we, in 2022, how can we see the glory of Jesus Christ? So first, the glory of the Incarnation. As Pastor Chris has mentioned previously, uh, the first 18 verses of uh, the book of John here is, uh, is the prologue, or it's the introduction to John's Gospel. So the verses that we're covering today are the end of the prologue. And as you'll see, it, it forms this inclusio, these, these bookends um, that are very similar. So we're going to see similarities uh, with the end of the prologue as with the, the beginning. So um, let's keep our eyes out for that. Uh, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. So before anything was created, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, was. He existed. He is uncreated and he is eternally forever. He's, he's always existed. So in verse 1 we see that the word was. And now here in verse 14, we see that the word that was God and with God then became flesh. The word was and then the word became flesh. The pre-existing word put on flesh. He bore our likeness. 
In becoming human, he didn't set aside his divinity. In the, in the incarnation, Jesus became fully man while still being fully God. In being God, Jesus was infinitely transcendent over us. But in becoming man, Jesus took that unthinkable, infinite step down to us. And the transcendent God became the imminent, close God-man. Emmanuel, God with us. And no one saw that coming. No one imagined that God would become man. But God displayed the glory of His infinite wisdom in sending His Son to do what we thought was impossible, to become one of us. And because he and, and he became one of us, not not just temporarily. Because I, I think that if he would have just put on flesh for a little bit and then after he resurrected, you know, uh, he and just kinda kinda shed all that, if if he would have just kind of temporarily been human, I think I think it, for us we would have doubted that he ever really fully was man, or we would have thought, well, maybe there's maybe there's something really wrong with us, just inherently wrong with us, with being uh, flesh. But he became one of us permanently. He is now forever reigning as fully God and fully man. So the Word became flesh. Then the text says, the incarnate Word dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. That, uh, this word dwell here, here is really interesting. Uh, it could also be translated as tabernacled or pitched his tent. So the word tabernacled among us. I think John uses this tabernacle language to point us back to the Old Testament tabernacle to, to help us see how Christ is the fulfillment of everything that the, that the tabernacle was for Israel. Uh, Rick Phillips describes the tabernacle this way. The tabernacle was a tent structure about 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. It had three areas. The outer court, where priests made sacrifices and washed themselves before entering. An outer room, the most holy, uh, the, uh, the, uh, an outer room, the holy place, housing the golden candlestick, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense, and an inner room, the most holy place, containing the Ark of the Covenant, where God himself dwelt. Everything about the tabernacle was symbolic of spiritual realities, and especially of Jesus Christ, who came as God's true tabernacle. On a side note, I, I recently started a, a class here at Trinity called uh, the Bible Instruction Class. It's for uh, youth 6th through ninth grade. Um, and, uh, and the students don't know this yet, um, but I, uh, I purchased a model of the tabernacle uh, to have them build. And one of the reasons why I'm having them do that is because of this verse. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. And so learning about the tabernacle will help us learn about Jesus. So how did the Old Testament tabernacle point to Jesus Christ as God's true tabernacle? 
Here's a few ways. This this isn't exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so first, the tabernacle was a physical place where the holy presence of God dwelt while in the midst of sinful people. In the same way, Jesus came filled in his flesh with the Holy Spirit of God so that he, as God, could dwell in the midst of his sinful people without destroying them. Second, the tabernacle was a mobile place of worship that led the people of Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. In the same way, Jesus was a a mobile tabernacle, bringing the holy presence of God wherever he went. He led people out of slavery and the wilderness of this world and into the promised land of heaven. Third, as Israel as they as Israel would journey throughout the wilderness, uh, they would eventually stop, and then when they would stop, they would make camp and they would uh, assemble the tabernacle. They would build the tabernacle in the center of the camp. In the same way. Jesus Christ is the center of our worship, the center of our assembly, the center of our church. Now, wherever we are in the world, we don't need this building. Wherever we are in the world, we can worship God by coming to Jesus Christ. And fourth, the tabernacle was humble in its outward appearance. Yeah, yeah, yes, there were there were gold items inside of the tent. But the outside was covered with skins, animal skins. In the same way, Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming an ordinary-looking Jewish man. He put on our skin. Now, uh, more more parallels could be made between Christ and specific elements in the tabernacle as well. Uh, But right now, what what we need to see is that God dwelt with man in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of our worship is centered around him. Jesus is the true tabernacle, the true temple. He is the priest, the high priest. And he is the sacrifice. In him there is mercy and atonement. In him is God revealed to us. Jesus is the glory of, uh, this is the glory of the incarnation. Alright, so how do we see in 2022 the glory of Jesus Christ? We, we don't have him physically here with us, and so how do we see his glory? John says, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, When John says we here, uh, in this immediate context, John is speaking of those eyewitnesses who saw Jesus Christ in the flesh. But as we know from other parts of Scripture, which even we read earlier, uh, we also can see the glory of Jesus Christ. We can see his glory if God heals our spiritual blindness. Not everyone can see the glory of Jesus 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, which we read earlier, says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, 
has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded those who do not believe in Christ, and that's why they can't see his glory. When they hear about Jesus, he isn't wonderful or glorious. He doesn't move them to worship him, to follow him with their lives, to take up their cross. They're blind to the glory. And, and all of us, we all used to be blind like that too. But God opened our spiritual eyes by His Holy Spirit so that we can see His greatness and His majesty and His worth and, 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 and the wondrous love of Jesus Christ. And seeing the glory of Jesus changes everything. Just by seeing Jesus for who He is and what He's done changes our lives to become like Him. The more we see and know Jesus, the more we will grow into His likeness. And one day, when Jesus appears in glory with all of His angels, it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Being comes from seeing. Being comes from seeing. Seeing the glory of Christ is transformational. The glory of Christ is so beautiful, so transformational, so powerful that we are changed by it. Is Jesus glorious to you? Do you see his glory in his humility? Do you see his glory in his teaching and in his miracles? Do you see his glory in his death? Do you see his glory in his fulfillment of the Old Testament and in all the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament? If you don't see that, then you may have eyes blinded by Satan. But as the blind beggars asked Jesus to heal them, and he, and he did so with great compassion and love, so also we can pray to Jesus and ask Him to heal our blinded eyes so that we can see His glory and be saved. So even right now, if you pray to Him right now, He can lift the veil that's over your hearts and take the scales off your eyes. And you will see the beauty of Christ and forever be changed. Let's now look at verses 16 and 17. The grace we have received. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through, uh, through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So in these two verses we see two things. First, 
that Jesus Christ is endlessly, uh, he's, an, he's the endlessly overflowing fountain of God's favor and generosity toward us. And second, we see that Jesus is greater than Moses. So verse 16 starts with the word for. Uh, and uh, that, that, that little word connects us past uh, verse 15, which was John's uh, side note about John the Baptist and, and Jesus being greater than John the Baptist. So we jump past verse 15 back to verse 14. And uh, I believe that we can see the connection between verses 14 and 16 when we ask this question. Why do we see the glory of Jesus? How, what, what, what caused us to see Verse 16 answers that by saying that we have seen his glory, uh, um, by saying that uh, we, have, we have seen his glory because from the fullness of Jesus we've all received grace upon grace. In other words, we see the glory of Christ because we have first received God's grace. We didn't see God's glory because we were really smart or we were really good, or because our parents, we were born in a Christian family. Rather, we saw His glory because God initiated giving us the grace of having our spiritually blind eyes healed. I mean, just think about like the Apostle Paul. He's on the road. He's going to go persecute Christians. He's going to throw them in jail, maybe even kill some. He's, he is bent on his, on his way in doing that, and then God reveals Himself to Paul and, and, uh, and he saw the glory of Jesus Christ and believed and was saved. That's the kind of change that happens. That's the kind of initiation that, that God does. He brings his grace to us before we're even asking for it. He brings this grace to us and opens our eyes. That is the pursuing love of God. So where does this grace come from? It comes from the fullness of Jesus Christ. The favor and kindness and generosity of God comes to us through Jesus Christ. And there's no end to it. Receiving God's gracious gifts, it's like, it's like taking a, a cup and, and taking a scoop out of the ocean. You're receiving, you receiving from the ocean doesn't affect the ocean at all. Uh, you could take as much of it as you would like, and and it, it's still you're not going to notice any difference to the level of the ocean. Apart from Christ, we are destitute. We're empty. We're bone dry. Jeremiah two compares us before Christ compares us to cisterns that are broken, that can hold no water. Though we are empty, Christ is full of abundance. In John 4, Jesus uh, is talking to a woman at a well. And Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the fountain of life. When we drink of him, 
When we believe, believing is drinking. When we drink of Him, we will never be thirsty again. He is the source of all light and truth. Just as the the sun never ceases to give us its warmth and light, so also Jesus never ceases to give us all the good things that we need to stay spiritually alive. He is infinitely rich. And so when we ask Him for His Holy Spirit and all the blessings and, and gifts and graces that flow from His Spirit, when we ask Him of these things, He gives to us generously. He grants far more than we can ask or imagine. So brothers and sisters, let's pray boldly. Let's never cease to pray, to ask for this infinite supply of grace to be ever flowing to us. Let's never cease to pray to God for Him to do great things. Great things. He has infinite power and wealth and wisdom. Next, in verse 17, we see this comparison between Jesus and Moses. Just as Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, who was respected by the Jews, so also Jesus is greater than the prophet Moses, whom the Jews revered without question. The sentence also starts with the word for, uh, which connects us uh, connects it back to verse 16. And there's a, there's a few ways... Uh, to take this connection, to understand it. But I think one of the most convincing explanations is this. John is comparing Jesus to Moses because while God did give his people grace and truth through the giving of the law, God gave the source of all his grace and truth when he gave us his son. A.W. Pink compared the law with the grace of the gospel, saying, Law manifested what was in man, sin. Grace manifested what is manifest what's in God, love. Law demanded righteousness from men. Grace brings righteousness to men. Law sentences a living man to death. Grace brings a dead man to life. Law speaks of what men must do for God. Grace tells of what Christ has done for men. I love this quote. Moses gave that which was symbolic and concealed. Jesus gives the fully revealed truth that he is the fulfillment of every shadow of the law. The law is perfect and good, but we could not restore our relationship with God through obedience to it because we've all broken God's law. The law instead points us outside of ourselves into Christ, the source of forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation with God. Let's now look at the last verse of John's prologue, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So this verse is very profound in a lot of ways. Uh, It starts with the reality that no one has ever seen God the Father. 
Other parts of Scripture confirm this. Uh, in Exodus 33, Moses asks God to show him his glory. God permits Moses to see his glory, but he says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Man shall not see me and live. Also in uh, 1 Timothy 6, Paul says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, maybe that kind of concerns you a little bit. Like, wait, like, so, so I, I can never see God? What? What's, what's going on here? But John reassures us that though God the Father cannot be seen, He can be known through the Son. And we can see the Son. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There is such a union and a shared likeness between the Father and the Son that to see the Son is to see the Father. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1 says that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of the Father. So by seeing the Son, we see the Father. And we're not destroyed. We live. We dwell. Then we see John complete his inclusio, his similar bookends to his introduction, by referring back to verse 1. In verse 1, uh, John said that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And here in verse 18, John says the same thing, but with different words. He explicitly calls Jesus God when he says, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus is God, and yet he is not the Father. Instead, just as we saw in verse 1, Jesus is with God. He is, as we see here, he is at the Father's side. And this could also be translated, he is, at the, he is in the bosom of the Father. Now, this shows the union of love that the Father and the Son have. They are one God in three persons, inseparable and united in everything. And John ends his introduction by saying that Jesus, the Word of God, the self-expression of God, He has made the Father known. He has made the Father known. This Greek word here for making the Father known, make, to make known, uh, is the word that we get our, the, the word exegesis from. Uh, and so in a sense, uh, uh, D.A. Carson put it that Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He has made the Father known. He has brought understanding and clarity and insight and revelation about who the Father is. Now it says that Jesus has made the Father known. We must not take it to mean that he's, he's, just, he's just one of the people out there who's made the Father known and that there's, there's others who have made God known to us as well. Now, John is saying here and in other parts of Scripture that Jesus is the only person to reveal the Father. 
For example, in John 8, verse 19, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish religious leaders and they ask him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Those are very provocative words from Jesus. I mean, to tell the Jewish religious elite, uh, those are just, you know, they, they live their lives studying the law meticulously. To tell them that they don't know God was shocking and insulting. But as hard of a word that was, it was true. They didn't know God the Father because they were rejecting God the Son. In Matthew 11:27, Jesus essentially says the same thing. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Son must reveal the Father for him to be known. Do you know God? Do you want a personal relationship with God? And ask the Son to reveal Him to you. You cannot reject Jesus and still have God. But if you have Jesus, then you know the Father. And not just, not just know Him with head knowledge, but you have an intimate, personal, father-son, father-daughter relationship with the God of the universe. Because God was born in flesh, we in flesh can be born of God. The Son of God can make us sons and daughters of God if we receive Him by faith. From the fullness of Christ, all the blessings of being a child of God are yours. You are an heir of all things. You are wealthy beyond imagination. You will dwell with God. You are no longer condemned for your sin. So you who who were once unholy have been made holy and can dwell forever with our holy God in perfect shalom. Brothers and sisters, we may not have seen Jesus in the flesh, but we have seen his glory. We have received his grace and we have known God the Father. Because of the glorious incarnation of Jesus and his death and resurrection, God completes his mission of the whole Bible that he might dwell with his people and they with him as their God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for putting on our flesh. What a great mystery that was. Help us, Lord, to see your glory each and every day. Help us to be transformed by your glory, to become more like you. Shine the light of your glory into our hearts so that we can see the, 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 the sinfulness of sin, how dark it is, that we can see the idols that are there and cast them out. So we can grow as holy temples of the living God, of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, I I thank you for what you've done to restore our relationship with yourself. 
You did what we couldn't do. You brought us to God. So help us now to live in light of this. Help us now as we come to the Lord's table to remember and to worship you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.